Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fighter? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. ASD? RAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Go. Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. When last we saw the Gemini program, they were celebrating another successful mission and another first for NASA's space program, and indeed for the world. Gordon Cooper and Pete Conrad had managed to ride their covered wagon around the Earth for a record 120 orbits, or nearly eight full days, shattering both the NASA and Soviet space program endurance records. Although the flight had not been without its moments of high drama, as far as NASA was concerned, it was a solid success. In addition to demonstrating that Project Gemini was accelerating along its flight program, NASA had also validated its new flight control system, including not only the new Mission Control Center in Houston, but also the whole NASA Mission Operations Organization, which had seen a fairly significant test on Gemini 5, and which had come through with flying colors. So, at the end of August 1965, NASA's attention turned to the task of uh, getting it all together, literally. And by this I mean, of course, that after a successful Gemini 4 mission had, that had demonstrated NASA's ability to perform an, a spacewalk, also known as an EVA or extravehicular activity, and after Gemini 5's success at demonstrating that NASA technology and NASA astronauts could function for the planned duration of a trip to the moon and back, there was only one major objective that the Gemini program had not seriously attempted. And that, of course, was the rendezvous of two spacecraft. Now, as we've discussed, demonstrating the controlled rendezvous of two spacecraft had pretty much always been Gemini's most important goal. And yet, here we are, with five launches and three successful crewed missions having been completed, and Gemini still hasn't made a serious attempt at rendezvous. I mean, sure, Jim McDivitt had made an abortive attempt to keep station on his own booster after separation on Gemini 4, but all that had proved was that uh, rendezvous was a lot harder than it looked, and that, frankly, it wasn't a task that the crew was going to be able to accomplish without help from the ground. And Cooper and Comrade had taken a rendezvous evaluation pod to orbit, and they had released it, Eh, but their fuel cell issues had caused them to do even less maneuvering than McDivitt had done. Now, later in that flight, Buzz Aldrin, one of uh, the Capcoms for the mission, who had actually studied spacecraft rendezvous as part of his doctoral research, had designed some maneuvers that simulated those that would be used during a rendezvous. But without an actual target, it really smacked more of finding ways to relieve the crew's boredom than doing any real testing. So, why was it taking so long for Gemini to get around to the one thing it had always been meant to do? Well, the answer to that question really comes down to one word. Agena. As we've talked about before, Agena, or to give it its full title, the Agena Target Vehicle, was the spacecraft that Gemini program had selected to act as the target for the Gemini vehicle to perform rendezvous with. Uh, calling it a target makes it sound kind of simple, like some kind of space-qualified bullseye that would go into orbit and wait for Gemini to show up uh, to try to get close to it. 
but actually it was much more than that. The Agena spacecraft uh, was a spacecraft in its own right. In fact, it was a spacecraft with a lot more flight heritage than the Gemini spacecraft, uh, having flown more than 100 times by 1965. And that's because Agena was the vehicle that the U.S. Air Force used as an upper stage to deploy its satellites. It had its own guidance and control system, as well as a powerful main engine, which was used as an upper stage to actually get to orbit after its Atlas booster was expended, and a less powerful but still substantial secondary engine that was used to perform orbital maneuvers that allowed Agena to deposit the Air Force's satellites where the Air Force wanted them. These were all the reasons why the Air Force suggested the Agena as the basis for a target vehicle for Gemini, and frankly, all the reasons why the Gemini program office selected it. Now, as we've discussed a couple episodes ago, it seemed like Agena was practically an off-the-shelf solution for NASA's problem, and also, as we have discussed previously, this should have been everyone's first clue that it wasn't going to be easy. It wasn't. Because although NASA wanted something that looked like Agena and felt like Agena and maybe even smelt like Agena, they didn't actually want Agena. First of all, while NASA liked the idea of having a spacecraft that could provide significant boost, as well as on-orbit maneuvering, the trick was that they wanted it to provide these functions after docking, meaning while it was attached to the Gemini spacecraft. Gemini spacecraft with two astronauts on board not just a U.S. Air Force satellite. And that was actually a big deal. The fundamental problem came down to risk, because, of course, there's always a risk that something like a rocket engine is going to malfunction. Some malfunctions might result in a very bad day for the spacecraft that Agena happened to be boosting. And the definition of bad day extended from placing that spacecraft in an undesirable orbit up to and including destroying the spacecraft entirely. Now, when that boosted spacecraft was a U.S. Air Force satellite, that would be a disappointing and expensive day. When the boosted spacecraft contained two NASA astronauts, that would be a catastrophe of epic proportions. A serious Algena malfunction could mean that the Gemini spacecraft and its occupants were obliterated in a cloud of fiery debris. But maybe more frightening, it also meant that the Gemini spacecraft could be placed in an orbit from which it literally could not return, leaving NASA and the world to watch as the astronauts slowly froze to death or asphyxiated, all of which was a risk that NASA had to feel had been well and truly retired before they were going to accept the Agena as a target vehicle. So it was vital, first of all, that Agena's propulsion system be upgraded so that uh, they could be trusted to be used to power a human-carrying spacecraft practice, this did not mean updating or modifying the Agena's rocket engines and thrusters. No, it basically meant replacing them with entirely something entirely new. Now, given that two of the systems that had already given Gemini the most trouble during its development had been the Titan's booster rocket, remember the Pogo effect, and the Gemini spacecraft thrusters, uh, this should have been an early indication that Agena was going to end up being much more of a development program than an off-the-shelf procurement. And this, in fact, it proved to be. It was not long at all before the cracks, literally, began to appear. 
when Ball Aerospace, the contractor who was designing the new main engine for the Agena Prime contractor, Lockheed, who were in turn supplying it to the U.S. Air Force, who were in turn supplying it to NASA, when Ball produced their first version of the new engine, serious quality problems immediately developed, including significant cracks in the engine. This was really just the tip of the iceberg. All in all, um, the description of the engine development includes all of the usual suspects, including burn-throughs in the combustion chambers and nozzles. Now, on the one hand, these sound like the problems that are typically associated with the development of rocket engines. But they are also suggestive of a contractor, or at least a contractor team, that seemed to be a bit in over their heads, since they just seemed to be problems that progressed much farther than they should have before they were discovered. All in all, the performance did not generate great confidence in the Gen Gemini program office. This whole situation was exacerbated by NASA's inability to engage directly with the contractor because of the contracting arrangements. I mean, not only were these arrangements ridiculously overcomplicated, but it also seems to me that they were arrangements that provided uh, ample opportunity for um, the interplay of procurement philosophies amongst various government agencies who, while sharing a common overall desired outcome, each felt that they could contribute their own particular expertise in terms of making it a reality. Uh, or, put another way, there was lots of room for organizational ego to get in the way of actually getting things done. You had the Air Force that was certain it knew how to buy stuff much better than those mad scientists over at NASA. You had Werner von Braun's Marshall guys who were sure they knew more about buying rockets than anyone else on the planet. And you had the Gemini program office who felt like only they knew anything about actually getting humans off the planet and back safely. So yeah, doesn't get acknowledged in the official histories, but I can't help but believe that there were some big, in fact, gorilla-sized egos sitting in the middle of every conference room when these problems were discussed. At any rate, the net result of all the development problems with the genus engines meant that even early on, even in mid-1964, the first Agena mission had been bumped well down the list in order to ensure that Agena was ready, and so it was scheduled for Gemini 6, and Wally Shira and Tom Stafford were assigned as the crew for the mission. They were assigned almost a year ahead of time, and they made it quite clear right from the start that Rendezvous was really the only reason for their flight. They would not be carrying fuel cells. Gemini 6 was the last spacecraft uh, designed only to use batteries. Mission planners expected to be able to stretch the battery power for two days, even with the power-hungry rendezvous radar being used for extended periods, but there was not a lot of room in the flight plan for anything else. In fact, Shira famously said, quote, On my mission, we couldn't afford to play with experiments. Unquote. In fact, the focus on rendezvous and docking even went so far that the mission rules actually allowed for the mission to be terminated early after the first day if the rendezvous objectives were successfully achieved. So no one was under, under any misapprehension. Gemini 6 was about rendezvous. But why so much emphasis on rendezvous? I mean, what was it about this seemingly straightforward task that had everybody in 1965 so um, uh, freaked out, man, to use the vernacular of the time? 
Well, we've already talked about um, orbital mechanical weirdness in a couple of episodes um, already. I mean, the whole uh, slow down to speed up stuff made it really counterintuitive. But there was actually more to it than that. Uh, as NASA studied the problem, and as astronaut Bud Aldrin wrote his PhD thesis on the topic, it became clear that effective rendezvous was not going to be something that the astronauts on orbit could do without help from the ground. Even in the few abortive attempts that NASA had made, uh, the controllers on the ground had discovered that they could just see things about what was going on that the crew on orbit just, just couldn't. So NASA realized that accomplishing the feat of getting it all together on orbit was going to require a proper procedure, a procedure that was documented, a procedure that had been tested, a procedure that could be and was simulated over and over and over again. It was, in short, the kind of thing that NASA engineers lived for, and frankly, kind of still do. To give the procedure its full name, the process of bringing two spacecraft together is normally called Rendezvous Proximity Operations Docking. This is useful because it splits the process into three phases. Now, ground and crew would be involved in each phase, but um, as we'll see, the focus of the kind of decision-making really shifts during the process. With the early phase, um, the process is principally run from the ground, and in later phases, it's being performed almost entirely by the crew on orbit. But even before getting uh, into what goes on during the process of rendezvous, we actually have to deal with another complexity that was a first for NASA, and that was that in order to complete a successful rendezvous operation, NASA would have to solve the problem of launching and controlling two spacecraft at the same time. And this had actually never been done before. And more than just launching them, they actually needed to launch them at exactly the right times. To understand why this is so important to the process of rendezvous, we need to talk about the coplanarity of orbits and why that matters. So um, buckle up. I need to do a bit of uh, mental hand-waving and virtual visual visualization here. Yeah, always a favorite sport when you're a podcaster. Uh, because believe it or not, even the orbital mechanical weirdness that we've already talked about in previous episodes um, contains some significant oversimplifications. The main one of these is that we've always started our discussion by assuming that the two spacecraft um, that want to get together are in the same orbit, meaning that they just follow each other around the planet, each basically following the same path over the ground. Normally, we kind of just assume that both spacecraft are going around the middle of the planet, you know, over the equator. But that isn't what actually happens when you launch a spacecraft. That's because a spacecraft launched from a spot that's not on the equator will not orbit the equator. Instead, it will want to go into an orbit that's tilted with respect to the equator by an angle that's equal to the latitude of its launch site. So... A spacecraft launched from Cape Canaveral, which is at around 28.5 degrees north latitude, will go into an orbit that's tilted or inclined by around 28.5 degrees. Now, all of that would be fine if the Earth didn't rotate. We could simply launch one spacecraft and then another one a little bit later, and they'd be in the same orbital plane, one behind the other, even if that plane was not the plane of the equator. If we wanted to make it really easy, we'd wait until the first spacecraft came around and was overhead again, 
and then launched the second one so that they would not only be in the same plane, but actually quite close to one another. That's if the Earth didn't rotate. The Earth does rotate. Which means that once the spacecraft leaves the ground, its orbit begins to precess. Well, or maybe more accurately, um, the Earth begins to rotate underneath it. So that by the time it comes back to where it was launched in orbit, it's no longer over the same place in the ground. The flip side of that effect is that a spacecraft launched from that same launch site, but one orbit later, will actually launch into a different orbital plane with the same inclination, but a different orbital plane than the first spacecraft. Now, uh, I guess we could wait a whole day for the target spacecraft to come all the way around again so that the orbital planes would line up, but that's not very efficient, and depending on the orbital period, there's no guarantee that it will actually be anywhere near the original launch uh, location when it's in the right orbital plane. It can be done, and in fact it is done when NASA launches to the International Space Station, but it requires launch windows that are pretty limited and pretty small. So, the more typical technique, especially in the early days, was to wait one orbit until the target was at about the right place in its orbit, but in a slightly different orbital plane. Then the second spacecraft would launch into a slightly different orbital plane. Now, the first step in the rendezvous procedure that would have been done was to adjust the chasing spacecraft's orbital plane to match the target. Now, luckily, for any two objects orbiting the Earth, or any other celestial body, there will always be two points where their orbital planes intersect, and these are called nodes. If you are at one of these nodes, uh, you can actually figure out how to thrust your spacecraft to rotate its orbital plane to coincide with the targets. It's a pretty expensive maneuver in terms of propellant required, so you don't want the adjustment to be too big, but it can be done. Uh, so once the chaser spacecraft is launched and established in orbit, its orbit has to be calculated and compared to the target. And then someone needs to do a calculation of where the node points are and how much of a kick is needed to align the two orbits. To be clear, this is not a calculation that can be done on orbit by the crew, even if they could see the target at this point, which they probably can't, even on radar. I mean, even if the two spacecraft are relatively close in orbital terms, they may well be tens or even hundreds of kilometers apart at this point, and because they're in very different orbital planes, their locations with respect to another, one another are changing continuously and maybe pretty rapidly. So um, this first orbit plane alignment is, uh, step is accomplished by the ground tracking both spacecraft, calculating their orbits, finding the node location, and calculating a burn program for the crew to execute that will shift their orbit to align with the target. This burn program will mean firing some combination of thrusters uh, with certain thrust values for a given time, or for pointing the spacecraft in a certain direction and finding, firing its main thrusters for a certain period of time. Now, this might be controlled directly by the crew, but more likely, if possible, it's going to be programmed into the maneuvering computer, and the crew will simply execute the program at the right time and for the right duration. If done correctly, at the end of that maneuver, the two spacecraft, chaser and target, will be in the same orbital plane. Now, they would still not necessarily be close to one another, but at least they'd be following each other around the planet. 
The next step in the process is to effect a rendezvous, meaning to get the spacecraft close together. The specifics of how this is done is going to depend on where in their common orbit each spacecraft is. Now let's assume the target is ahead of the chaser, eh, maybe by several hundred kilometers. This is the situation that Gemini would expect to be in with respect to Agena, by the way. Now, once again, at this point, there's probably no visual or probably even radar contract contact between the two spacecraft. So once again, it's the ground that's going to be planning the next maneuver. Controllers on the ground will again evaluate the two spacecraft orbits. What they really want to see is that the chase spacecraft has an orbit that allows it to catch up with the target. So in order to do this, the chaser's orbit will have to be lower than the target. Remember, you go faster when you're lower down. But it does not, in fact, have to be lower than the target's orbit for the whole orbit. In fact, maybe the best situation is for the target's orbit to be a circle and the chaser's orbit to be a slightly elliptical, such that its highest point, its apogee, is on the target's orbit and its lowest point, its perigee, is a little bit lower. And this is, in fact, the method that Buzz Aldrin had proposed to use for Gemini 6, based on his PhD work. Now, the effect of this geometry is that, as the two spacecraft circle around, the chaser will keep pace with the target when they're both at the target's altitude, at their common apogee. And then it will speed up as it falls lower, and then it will slow down again as it passes through perigee and comes back around. In this way, with each revolution, the chaser spacecraft catches up to the target by a certain amount. But there's always a moment in the orbit when the two spacecraft are at the same altitude and where their relative velocity is minimized. Now, the process may take a few orbits, and there may actually be more than one of uh, these orbital adjustment burns to gradually adjust the speed of the approach. I've not seen any source that describes the Gemini procedure in detail, but that is certainly the procedure that has been used and kind of still is. Of course, the ultimate objective is to arrange it such that the chaser's closest approach to the target is at or near their common apogee, and that it is close enough for the crew on orbit to see the target uh, with radar, if not by eye. Accomplishing this roughly concludes the rendezvous phase. And now begins the proximity operations or proxops phase. The important shift here is that maneuvers increasingly shift to maneuvering with respect to the target directly and not with respect to the two spacecraft orbits, hence the name proximity operations. In fact, at the point where the chaser is completing this closest approach to target, and hopefully has the target in sight, visually or with radar, it will appear very much to the crew on orbit, like an aircraft or car, that is approaching them on a near collision course, possibly pretty rapidly, uh, because even though the relative velocity of the two spacecraft is minimized at this point in their common orbit, it doesn't necessarily mean it's uh, small on the scale of human perception anyway. Now, if nothing were done at this moment, the crew would probably watch as the target flew past them at some distance, and then began to fly away again, accelerating as it did so, because, after all, the two spacecraft, while they have a similar apogee at this point, don't have the same orbit. So, at this point, the crew want to do two things. First, they want to kill the relative velocities between the two spacecraft. And then, 
They want to start moving towards the target in a controlled fashion in simply, instead of simply flying by it. Now, the first of these actions, more or less, requires help from the ground. As establishing the relative velocity of another object that's moving obliquely to you, even at a moderate velocity, in three dimensions, is a difficult calculation for human perception to solve, at least in a single iteration. Uh, the ground, on the other hand, should be able to provide an exact solution that will allow for the crew to do a burn that allows them to exactly match the target's velocity, so that at the end of the burn, the two spacecraft will be moving in tandem, and this is called station keeping. Now, even though the spacecraft are moving in conjunction, it is actually probably not true that their orbits are identical, even at this point. So relative motion will gradually start to develop. But since it's probably slow, the crew on orbit would more likely be able to adjust to those motions and continue keeping station on the target. But at this point, um, they're probably several kilometers from the target, and they'll have a radar signal. But if they see the target at all, it's not going to be much more than a point of light, probably. So the next task is to close the range to the target. And at this point, uh, control of the operation probably switches to the crew on orbit because they'll be able to point at the target and start flying towards it in a controlled state with just the information that they have on orbit. Now, orbital mechanics is still operating at this point, so likely what will happen is that the motion that starts out as a direct motion towards the target will gradually sort of slide off as the differences in the orbits of the two spacecraft make themselves felt. Uh, at some point, uh, when this sideways velocity builds far enough, the process of killing the relative velocity and then re-establishing a closing course might need to be repeated, maybe multiple times. Each time this happens, though, the target will be closer, the relative velocity smaller, and the need for advice or help from the ground will steadily decrease. Now, I should note that there is no particular reason why the two steps of killing the relative velocity and then moving directly towards the target need to be accomplished as separate tasks. At longer ranges and higher velocities, the ground certainly can provide a burn program that will accomplish both tasks at once. But as the distance decreases and the relative velocities decrease, the crew will naturally find themselves accomplishing both tasks simultaneously. Uh, as the job becomes more and more similar to the ones they've trained for as pilots. Eventually, the proximity operations phase will probably end with the two spacecraft quite close together and keeping station on one another again. At this point, their orbits are, have probably almost converged, so the tendency for new relative motions to creep in will have decreased, although they probably won't have disappeared entirely and keeping station will require small, periodic inputs from the crew. Now, if the spacecraft are appropriately equipped, the final or docking phase will then begin. Accomplishing docking usually means bringing the docking mechanisms of the two spacecraft together in the right orientation so they can either be latched via a separate command or make light contact in exactly the right way to allow the latch to fire automatically, sort of like um, coupling train cars together. Either way, the docking procedure is the riskiest part of the whole process, since it ultimately ends with two spacecraft in contact. In order for that contact to be controlled docking, and not a collision, 
the incoming spacecraft has to be oriented and aligned very precisely, and the approach has to happen in a very controlled way. Now, over the years, there have been a variety of means of accomplishing the delicate task of docking. I don't actually know how it was done those very first times on the Gemini program, but I can guess at the elements of the procedure based on how I've seen it done in later years. Almost certainly the plan would have been to make the final station-keeping stop one that was within a few tens of meters of the target. It's likely that this station-keeping position would have been in one of the um, sort of cardinal directions from the target, like either directly above or below it on orbit, which would be called an R-bar approach since it's along the radius vector, or directly in front of the target or behind it, a so-called V-bar approach because it's on the velocity vector. Now, I do know that the Gemini crews experimented with the positive R-bar approach, meaning approaching from above the target with their heads down towards the Earth. They didn't like it. And they found it to be disorienting. And also, uh, I suspect they might have had difficulty seeing details of the target spacecraft when it was seen against the bright Earth background. So I'm not exactly sure which approach they used, but I'm certain that it was uh, either an R-bar or a V-bar approach, but it's just a guess. Now, once in this final station-keeping position, uh, the next step will normally be to refine the alignment of the incoming spacecraft. In other words, to make sure that even at a distance, the two docking interfaces are correctly oriented. Now, this is normally done with some kind of special docking target, The trick here is that proper alignment consists of being both in the right place, so in the middle of the docking envelope, in terms of left, right, up, and down, but also being pointed exactly at the center of the docking mechanism, so having the correct orientation. Now, separating these various degrees of freedom, and there are six, by the way, three translational and three orientation, it, it... It's not really a trivial task for human perception, and it actually takes careful design of a docking target and pretty significant training on the part of the astronauts to be able to do it well, but it's possible. Now, uh, by the way, separating those degrees of freedom is a much easier task for computers to do, which is more or less the basis for much of my career in the space business. It's not really a topic for today. Once alignment has been uh, cleaned up, it's time to start the final approach to docking. Now, done correctly, this phase should be about as interesting as watching grass grow, because that's the speed at which the approach is going to be conducted. It will be measured in centimeters per second, probably, and will consist of multiple small inputs to slowly drive the two docking mechanisms together. Once contact is made and a latch is effected, docking is complete and the two spacecraft have effectively become one. Now, my description of that whole process owes a lot to the experience gained in the 60 years since Gemini, and most of what I have described was actually not known in October of 1965. Some of it had been predicted, some of it had been at least guessed at, but none of it had ever been tried. And so that was why everyone at NASA was now intensely focused on getting Agena and Gemini off the ground so they could get it all together on orbit. But, and that's actually going to be a story we have to continue in the next episode. 
that's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.